This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to the Country Hour this afternoon. I'm Cassie Huff. Coming up, there's been a huge jump in sheep numbers. 15 million more sheep in Australia than just three years ago. I'll have more on what's driving that and how it could affect 2023 for sheep and lamb producers. And was your harvest blown out this year? The late harvest has taken its toll on farming families, not just in the paddock. I'm actually hearing from quite a lot of women that they're the ones who are really feeling it. You know, they really look forward to that, getting to spend a bit of quality time at the end of harvest as a whole family. And I think it's certainly having ripple effects. And now, you know, kids are back at school and a lot of families haven't had that time together. It uh, certainly has been a long harvest in many parts of the state. Hopefully it means it was a good harvest for you and uh, plenty of crop there to sell, but it has taken its toll in some areas as well. And uh, I'll get into that with Kate Gunn. But in the meantime, just looking at it from a paddock point of view, some grain growers are facing the reality of uh, not having a break between harvests this year as the 2022-23 season stretches into February, with some still working and farmers uh, really having having limited or no time to recoup. Grain growers, so grain, sorry, grain producers SA CEO Brad Perry says the biggest impact will be on their mental health. Yes, yeah, so it's certainly been an unusual season, um, which has gone on a, a lot longer than previous years. Um, I think most expected to be wrapped up um, by mid-January. Uh, and in saying that, uh, a lot of the grain producers were. Um, but unfortunately, there's still some, um, mostly due to, to weather and late maturity, are still going into February. So feedback we're getting in here at, uh, at Grand Producers say uh, the Mallee Riverland area is pretty much all but done. Um, there's still some uh, Grand Producers harvesting south of Narracourt in the southeast. Um, small pockets in the mid-north are still going. Um, there's still a few growers harvesting on South York Peninsula. And the lower air peninsula are just finishing up. So that's the extent of uh, grain producers that are are still harvesting, but we expect them to be uh, all wrapped up and finished very soon. And for those farmers or producers that are still working, does that then impact or delay preparations for the next season? It doesn't delay preparations as such, but probably the the biggest impact will be more around probably mental health because uh, often uh, grower will, will finish up, um, you know, late December or, you know, early January worst case. Um, and that gives them a little bit of a break, um, you know, to go and spend some time with their family between the end of harvest and seeding. And because it's gone so late for a majority of growers across the state, some may not even get a break at all. And and the ones that do, uh, it's a very short break. So it's going to be a a long couple of years for for our grain producers and and hopefully they get time to to have a little bit of a a rest. Probably the other issue that that pops up is um, summer weed control. So uh, if it's still harvesting, you know, there's there's some challenges in, in controlling those weeds that are starting to pop up everywhere and there's there's potentially some some quality downgrades too if, if you're still harvesting at the moment but um most of the deliveries are, can still happen you know there's, there's 
probably not as uh, many opening hours at uh, at silos as there were during the peak of harvest. But um, there's a lot of deliveries, I think, still being made, but mostly from silo bags. But hopefully on the positives, um, you know, it's been an absolute bumper record harvest. So hope the returns are there for, for uh, you know, a majority of growers in South Australia. And speaking of that bumper crop, how has the shipment and movement of grain from crop to silos gone and further on? I think when it was at the peak of harvest, um, you know, there were sites, local sites that, that filled up really quickly. So there were efforts made to try and clear out some space and, and other growers did have to travel a little bit further um, to deliver the silo, which was less than ideal. But there's been a lot of a lot of grain going into the system for Vitera and, and Seaports. So um, it's certainly still on track um, for that estimated uh, 13, almost 13 million tonne harvest, um, which would yeah, smash all records uh, in South Australia. Certainly would if that is what comes off. And it looks like we could be, or farmers could be on track to do that. That was Grain Producers SA CEO Brad Perry speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. And speaking about this unusually late grain harvest for many farmers across the state, the pressure to get that work-life balance has been extremely hard, according to clinical psychologist and iFarmWell founder Kate Gunn, who says farming families are dealing with higher than average stress and exhaustion. She says breaks and holidays have been cut short as harvest wraps up and the next lot of jobs appear. It's only anecdotal. We haven't actually done any research on this, but what what we're hearing on the ground is that the late finish certainly has put people under a fair bit of pressure and, you know, they haven't had the time to connect with their families and and have a bit of a break that they normally would have and now they're, you know, straight back into things like spraying. So, yeah, anecdotally, um, it certainly seems to be a common pattern. So what are you wanting to get across then with these farmers that are exhausted from from harvest? Yeah, look, I think, you know, as farmers, we really value hard work. And um, I'm not a farmer, but I've grown up in a farming family. And I think it's something that's quite entrenched in, in everyone in that, with that culture. But something that I'm consistently trying to remind myself and trying to remind others about is that sometimes allowing yourself rest is actually the most productive thing that you can do. And um, if you charge off and do things in a hurry, you can make bad decisions and you know, have accidents and things that actually end up costing you more time in the long run. So I know it's really hard when there's lots of work to be done, but sometimes slowing down um, can actually you know, lead to quicker progress. What about other states that maybe you know, work all year round on on farms. Some of them have summer crops and this is pretty rare to see in South Australia such a a late harvest. What would you say to those that might be like, oh, these these SA uh, farmers, they've had a fantastic season, they should be happy that they've uh, had such a a big harvest and a a late harvest. What would you say to those that, that might be looking at it from a different angle? Yeah, good question. Well, I guess, you know, yes, people have had a, had a good harvest generally, but it also has been a pretty big year in other ways. So, you know, um, with input prices going through the roof, you know, they really needed to have a good harvest, didn't they? So people are still under a lot of pressure. And uh, and they say that, you know, um, the difference between expectations and reality is where a lot of stress lies. So, you know, farmers usually expect in South Australia um, to be finished up around Christmas time and and this year that hasn't happened. So I guess there's quite a bit of disappointment in terms of 
their ability to take a rest before, you know, seeding and the next season is upon them. So, yeah, look, it, it, yes, they have had a good season, but it, but it certainly has been a lot of hard work. You spoke about that work-life balance. If that is out of kilter, what can that lead to? Can it lead to poor decisions heading into the new year? Yeah, it can. It can lead to poor financial decisions, poor personal decisions. You know, when you're rushing around, uh, it can lead to accidents. And, you know, often your family or your health or your mental health or your finances will actually tell you when when you've got this wrong. So I guess my advice to people is just to be aware of the different roles that you're balancing and to think about whether or not you're meeting those responsibilities in a way that you're kind of satisfied with. And and if, you know, you've, you're not able to spend as much time with your family or with your, your sport or maintaining your health or whatever it might be, you know, just trying to get a bit braver and say no to some of the requests or invitations that come your way and understand that it's actually okay to prioritise yourself sometimes. And that's really, you know, the most important thing. No one else will look after you. You have to do it for yourself. Is it realistic for farmers or those in rural and regional communities to aim to achieve that work-life balance? Yeah, look, I think it's it's challenging when you um, want to be a good member of your community and you've got lots of people um, asking you to do things. I think it's also challenging when, you know, working hard is something that's really valued in your community um, and probably something that you really value yourself. But, you know, it, it's something that anyone who's listening to this who knows me would probably be saying it's the pot calling the pedal kettle black a bit but it is something that we really all do need to work on if we want to make the distance so yes you can work hard in the short term but if you don't take a break something will give and you know you don't want it to be your health or your mental health or your family or anything like that. Does it have a flow on effect to other family members as well maybe the the kids that are used to having mum or dad home um, through January before they head back to school or you know other other family members or, or friends that might be um, used to seeing them at this time of year? Yeah, I think I'm actually hearing from quite a lot of women that they're the ones who are really feeling it. You know, they really look forward to that, getting to spend a bit of quality time um, at the end of harvest as a whole family. And I think it's certainly having ripple effects. And now, you know, kids are back at school and a lot of families haven't had that time together. Um, and that can be problematic. So if people can prioritise, you know, other ways of spending time together. Um, I think that's a really smart thing to do. Hopefully they get a bit of a break and some time together now. That was clinical psychologist and iFarmwell founder Kate Gunn speaking with Brooke Nindorf. Now, it is 15 minutes past 12. We'll stay with farming, but to look at one of the serious questions that's being posed about whether or not there will be enough food produced to feed a growing population if Europe goes ahead and bans the common weed killer glyphosate. That's according to a Victorian-based crop scientist and consultant, Harm Van Rees, who travelled through Europe and North America last year to take a look at what farmers are trying to do to manage the reduced access to glyphosate. And Harm Van Rees spoke at the DRDC update last week. He says he expects glyphosate to be banned in the European Union this year, with big impacts on production to follow. So there's big differences around the world, as we understand. I mean, there's very little pressure in Australia to look at the amount of glyphosate we're using. But, for example, in in Europe, it is highly likely that the product will be banned this year. And that will have huge implications for us as well, because we export grain to the EU, so they've got residue levels. And, I mean, it's time 
when there's that amount of pressure on particular chemicals around the world, then we should actually look at what we're doing at home as well. What's that EU ban going to mean? I mean, what are the implications for global food security if if farmers are losing access to glyphosate? Well, exactly. But the EU, it's such a wealthy continent. I mean, they're going to pay higher subsidies to their farmers. So already a significant proportion of farmers' income in the EU is from subsidies and subsidies will increase because, I mean, all the farmers we met say they will lose production, but in income-wise, it's probably going to have a much less impact on them. And in Europe, there's still a lot of conventional farming taking place, so it's deep tillage, whereas in Australia, we're 100% no-till and min-till. And for us to lose glyphosate would be would be a much bigger impact than it has on Europe. Although most European farmers we met, except for the organic farmers we met, they do not want to use glyphosate because it is such a good product for them. And what's it going to mean, I guess, for Australian production and access to those export markets if we're producing grain with glyphosate in the system? Are we eventually going to lose that access? I haven't got an answer to that because that that remains to be seen. But I can imagine if we put ourselves in the shoes of a European farmer, then they would be very unhappy if it was banned in Europe and they imported grain from jurisdictions around the world, Canada, the US and other places where it'd still be able to be used. Is it? worthwhile fighting back against moves to ban glyphosate or has, or has the argument already been had and now it's about adapting? Well, I think it's a bit of both. Whether we can persuade people in Europe that you know, ultimately voting for particular political systems to change their mind, well, that's unlikely. But in terms of how we treat that particular issue in relation with glyphosate and other farm chemicals, is that I think there are things that we can do just to make sure that our practices are possibly, you know, are as good as they possibly can be. And Australian regulations already are pretty clear on the use of glyphosate, that it is safe to use at current systems. Why is there this forensic sort of focus on glyphosate, particularly when, when we know there are other common farm chemicals which are much more toxic to human health but but don't seem to be talked about anywhere near as much? Well, that's a very controversial issue and I think it's got a little bit to do with Monsanto and the way that Monsanto actually sold the product. I mean, people reacted to that and now we've got court cases in the, in the US and they paid millions of dollars in compensation, billions of dollars. And that reverberates around the world, and these are the consequences of those early on those actions early in the piece when glyphosate or Roundup was first released. Just finally, Tom, to, to summarise, what would it mean? Can you sort of paint a picture about what would it mean in Australia, in the Australian context, if a glyphosate ban were to be put in place? All the benefits from no-till farming will lose those because. There is no alternative to glyphosate. I know that we've got, obviously, we've got other products on the market that we have used in the past and continue to use, but some of those are already banned. For example, Paraquat has already been banned in most jurisdictions around the world, but we still have it. But none of those alternatives 
will replace glyphosate as it is. So it is going to be having a big impact on our farming system, especially on no-till farming. And we should be thinking about what can we do to replace glyphosate in case it happens. It's not a panic situation, but it's something that we should be thinking about at least in the short to medium term, to try and address some of the issues that people are going to have in other jurisdictions around the world when it's banned. Crop consultant Harm Van Rees speaking with Angus Verley. Now, before we get to weather, you might have heard that sheep numbers in Australia are about to hit a 16-year high as better weather and genetics result in a massive flock rebuild. In numbers from Red Meat Research and Development Organisation Meat and Livestock Australia, the Australian sheep flock is set to hit 78.75 million head in 2023. That's a huge number. And Senior Market Information Analyst Ripley Atkinson says it'll mean nearly 15 million more sheep than just three years ago. The projections we've released today for sheep are really optimistic and and the outlook's quite positive. So we've got the flock forecast to grow to its highest level since 2007. And as a result of that, we are forecasting record land production and exports to eventuate this year as well. 78.75 million head of sheep in Australia. How much higher is that than than the lowest over the last uh, decade or so? How low did the flock get? Yeah, so in 2020, following the drought, the flock got to 64 million. So we've grown by nearly 15 million within the space of of four years. That's an incredibly quick turnaround. Yeah, and we've also got to remember three La Ninas. Now, that that doesn't directly um, affect overall performance, but it's the first time or the third time in 50 years we've had three consecutive La Ninas. We had a really strongly correlated negative IOD last year, which supported that improved winter-dominant rainfall for for Australia's sheep-producing regions as well. So there's a lot of those factors, as well as water and grass availability, which are underpinning it too. When you look at the map of Australia, are there areas where sheep are growing faster than others? We know the last two years particularly, the key states of New South Wales and Victoria have done a lot of the heavy lifting. But this year we are expecting other states such as Queensland or the other states, Queensland, South Australia, Tassie and Western Australia to contribute and grow more substantially. New South Wales and Victoria, as I mentioned, have have driven the rebuild into growth and now we expect those improvements to continue to come more substantially from the other states. So what's behind this? Is it weather or is it price? Weather is the key driver, um, you know, of, of how the the market's performed and how we've seen that really strong improvement in numbers. And what weather has done for Australian sheep producers is is given those optimal conditions for reproductive performance for those females. You know, there, there was a lot of ewe lambs joined um, and there continues to be every year a lot of ewe lambs joined. The um, availability of grass and water supports better marking rates, which is giving us larger lamb crops. And then, you know, also beyond that, that, that medium-term confidence promoted by price is incentivising producers to grow their numbers to capitalise on, on where the market sits and then obviously as well that international demand. Was the growth here in the meat sheep side of the industry or the wool sheep side of the industry? We know through the October wave of the uh, sheep producer intention survey, or merino genetics account for 70% of Australia's breeding ewe flock. So they're still the vast majority of where 
that that increase in numbers will come from. But we have seen increases and and the surveys data is telling us that, not necessarily projections, that we are seeing increases in first cross pure meat breeds, shedding breeds and dual purpose as well. So the growth obviously is is widespread and it's across all, all different breeds. And then it comes down to, to the, the slaughter of sheep as well. Has that slowed as the flock rebuild has been on? It has, yes. It did slow, particularly in 2020 into 2021. We saw improvements last year, particularly in lamb slaughter, and then into 2023 in our forecast moving forwards, we're expecting record lamb slaughter for 2024 as well for both mutton and lamb. So we're expecting a 24% increase in uh, mutton slaughter this year as those producers have the luxury of turning off non-performing females or or cast for age um, use as well. So we're going to see an uptick in, in mutton slaughter and then the lamb slaughter because of those uh, fundamentals I spoke about earlier, delivering a larger lamb drop, we're going to see an increase to the fourth highest lamb slaughter on record in 2023 as well. So it sounds like there's going to be a lot happening in the sheep industry so forth. Will that put pressure on prices if the slaughter numbers are going to be so high? When you look at prices year on year across most categories bar mutton are actually performing relatively relatively firm and they're still operating in line with the five-year average. In terms of what that looks like for the next 12 months, um, we don't know. We don't know what that means, but the international demand and the international space does play a role in how domestic lamb and mutton prices perform. And there are strong indicators of improved demand as a result of a number of different factors, which do point to supporting our domestic um, lamb and mutton prices. Ripley Atkinson, a senior market analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia, speaking to Warwick Long. Now, I've got some weather warming up through the latter part of the week. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Jenny Horvath, can give some more details, though. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So how are things looking? Oh, look, it's pretty stable at the moment and temperatures are on the rise. So we've got a high-pressure system sitting to the south of the southeast and it's slowly making its way off into the Tasman Sea today. So as it does that, as it drifts away, we'll see those winds shift from more of a southeast to easterly to more of an east-northeasterly over the next few days and we will see those temperatures on the rise. It was a bit of a, a cool start, though, this morning for the southeast, getting down to 4.4 at Pathway, but the remaining qualm in the north. It is pretty clear out there today, so a dry day and we are looking at temperatures generally sort of mild to warm in the southeast, greater to very hot in the north over the northwest. So those hot temperatures, very hot temperatures that we're seeing in the northwest today, we will see more broadly across on western parts tomorrow, even probably getting quite um, very hot on sort of Air Peninsula as well. And then by Thursday, more broadly across the state, looking at very hot conditions. That is ahead of a trough of low pressure that will start to move across from the west. As this change comes across, we're not really expecting too much weather with it. We could see a little bit of thunderstorm activity with that, but they are looking relatively dry. So for the focus... Um, with those storms on Thursday, probably up in the far northwest of the state during the afternoon. And then ahead of that trough, there is a bit of a, a mid-level band further south that comes across. So a few spots out of there and maybe a rundle of thunder, but probably more likely to see the storms up in the far northwest on the Thursday. We will see that trough continuing to move to the northeast on Friday, so still seeing some very hot conditions in the far north and along the eastern 
border ahead of that trough moving through on Friday. It looks like it stalls up in the north of the state on Saturday, so still maintaining that heat across the very far north over the weekend and into next week. Sort of starts to drift down a little bit further. Again, couldn't rule out a little bit of activity as that change moves across on the Friday and the Saturday, but essentially it is a a dry change moving through. Nothing too significant at this stage. So rainfall totals, we are generally looking at only probably a couple of millimetres at best across the southern agricultural areas that change moves through later in the week and across um, parts in the far far west with that as well. So a bit of heat coming up um, before a milder, pretty much dry weekend again there, Cassie. Thanks so much for that. Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology there in the far west of New South Wales. The Upper Western will be sunny tomorrow. Overnight temperatures dropping to 17 to 20 degrees. But during the day, it's getting up to the mid to high 30s. The Lower Western, very similar. It's also going to be sunny. Temperatures getting down to 14 to 17. But again, getting up to the mid to high 30s in the Lower Western. We've got more to come on the Country Hour. It is Valentine's Day. We couldn't miss the opportunity to talk about flower farming, so that's coming up and a lot more uh, as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it is lovely to have your company today on Valentine's Day. I am Cassie Huff. Now, roses are often the flower of choice for Valentine's Day, but for people who perhaps want something different or would like to focus on locally produced flowers, given a lot of cut roses are imported, there is actually a huge range on offer. I was quite delighted to see one of my favourite flowers, the snapdragon in full bloom. I've got quite a few um snapdragons in bloom at the moment. Naomi Mee started growing a range of different flowers last year to diversify her family's pig farming operations at Taylorville. This is her first Valentine's Day as a florist or flower grower, I should say. So she's getting an understanding of what people are after. Lots of old country classic kind of flowers. Sunflowers have been one of my focuses. Zinnias, snapdragons, stock, sweet peas, marigolds, different varieties, asters. Billy Buttons, Stathis, Foxglove and a whole heap of other stuff. I'm just trying out a lot at the moment. That is a huge range of flowers to be farming. And I would love to know what your favourite non-rose blooms are for Valentine's Day. Maybe you've got a special flower that you like to celebrate with your beloved or um, perhaps you grow something that you like to uh, give to to people Um, or as she was saying there's lots of summer crop flowers like the uh, sunflowers a lot of sunflowers are in bloom at the moment right across the country so I'd love to know what your favorite non-bloom non-rose blooms are for Valentine's Day you can text 0467922891 or phone 1300 in the next half hour I'm also going to take you to the southeast where a mushroom farmer wants the southeast to become the mushroom capital 
of Australia. And uh, she has some good reasons for that, and I'll tell you what they are soon. But first, here's Matt Coleman with the latest in news headlines. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Treasurer, Stephen Mulligan, says it will be inequitable to ask the federal government to extend the National Home Builders Program. The state opposition says about 1,400 South Australian building projects will miss out on the program when it cuts off in April and it should be extended. The federal scheme, which began in 2020 under the Coalition Government, provides $25,000 grants for people renovating or buying new homes. An Adelaide business has been fined $150,000 over a fatal head injury suffered by an employee who fell through a roof in 2021. The 58-year-old victim worked for All-Star Asbestos Service and was on top of a veranda which gave way, causing him to fall two and a half metres. And the Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill has called out Iran as one of the countries conducting foreign interference in Australia. In a speech, Claire O'Neill warned of some foreign governments tasking people to collect sensitive personal information of individuals in Australia because of their activism. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, it is getting close to autumn and uh, that means that the grape harvest is underway in some parts or very close. And so are you looking forward to this year's wines that will be produced from these grapes? Well, as wineries begin crush this week in the Riverland, Wine Growers Cooperative say they've finalised the prices for all wine grapes except two and it's probably not too hard to guess what they are the two that are proving quite hard to shift at the moment ccw which is a grow cooperative will engage an independent expert to finalize the price negotiations with accolade ones on shiraz and cabernet sauvignon grapes ccw chief executive jim godden explains the latest to eliza berlage well, we've uh, reached a point that we went to uh, out to growers and notified them on pricing for the majority of the grape varieties on Friday. We've reached a point with Accolade and tacit agreement on those varieties. Um, although that we we have um, reached a point that post the vintage and later on in the year to come back and have a look, we realise that this vintage is certainly very different with all everything that's been thrown at it. So uh, the right to sit at the table and have a conversation come mid-year and see where we roll up. Now, for the two main red varieties, that's Shiraz and Cabernet, of course, and uh, you, you're certainly aware and would have been reporting on for you know good 18 months now the oversupply in the red market. and We haven't been able to reach uh, agreement on those two. Within our um, contractual um, relationship, we do have the ability to uh, bring in an independent expert and, and we'll be doing that to um, for the pricing on those two um, varieties. And uh, how long uh, do you expect that process to take? Uh, typically with timestamps, so it's not a, a long time, but you would be looking somewhere within the region of four to six weeks. As you can understand, we have to work out who are the nominees, um, agree to that nomination, have the time frame to prepare a submission and then certainly from the expert's point of view have them the ability of the time to review those submissions, collate any other data and then make a determination. And for the other prices that um, that you've been able to secure or agree on, um, yeah, what can you tell us about that? I mean, particularly interested in, for example, Chardonnay uh, now overtaking Shiraz as the most popular. Yeah, what have been some of the prices for um, other varieties in the Riverland? Uh, overarchingly, prices... Uh, have continued that downward trend. You know, we uh, certainly the Reds over the last couple of years, we were slightly disappointed 
uh, with no doubt. We were hoping that whites were going to hold. You know, your point about Chardonnay being the most valued um, variety, but pricing has come out within the with the market. We've, we've generally seen about a 10% on average drop. Um, that's disappointing as growers. It's disappointing from the amount of time and energy that's been thrown into into getting this crop to be able to be harvested, to see those prices decline. Typically, everything we've seen, reds are below cost of production, so whites were where the growers were looking to um, retain value, and uh, so any sort of reduction in that prices has come at a cost to the grower. Were there any bright spots in the, in the negotiations? Uh, there's a few uh, bright sparks, you know, the, the areas of Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, the Grenaches, but Eliza, you know, I'll be fair, they're a bit few and far between in the industry at this point in time, um, high spots, and, you know, the, the amount that are harvested through this region, it's, it's not providing a viable return for the great majority of growers. CCW Chief Executive Jim Godden. Meanwhile, many grape growers like Nathan Jericho from Barmer say they're hopeful that things will turn around. Certainly um, it's below cost of production, certainly off the highs that we've had in the previous years. I think a lot of guys are really going to feel it this year. I guess we're lucky because we've got um, other income streams, so I guess we'll weather the storm maybe a little bit better. Um, But it does still impact our bottom line as well for sure. What will these prices mean for your plans for vintage this year? Yeah, so we're hoping to obviously white's a bit in favour. So through the season we've tried to maximise our yields with pruning and, and fertiliser and water, so trying to get the best out of them. The reds, I guess, always had that glimmer of hope that they might take more than they actually want. It's probably, uh, yeah, unfortunately not going to be that case and we're still going to be restricted to yeah minimal tonnage and for and minimal price as well. So... And it's really, yeah, if you factor in a lot of your costs, you know, it really is below cost of production. A lot of, yeah, we'll definitely go backwards on on particularly reds anyway. Now, one of the other growers here was talking about how it's something that you're always thinking about. What sort of impact is this having on you and, um, you know, your family, those sorts of things? Yeah, definitely. um, It's, uh, yeah trying to I guess always get through the year making sure there's enough money in the in the bank to to do it year in year out and we've sort of been through times like this before and you sort of think oh how are we ever going to sort of get through and we're kind of back to that and lucky I'm probably more I'm a bit younger than than most and that helps but but still you got to try and consider well am I going to continue in this industry or yeah what what other options are there going to be is it different varieties or or different income streams and things like that I mean I'd like to think that we can continue with wine grapes into the future but it obviously has to be viable there's no point doing growing something and or doing anything and making a loss you know I know we all love farming and and whatnot, but uh, at the end of the day, you still need to be able to, to make something out of it. Barmer grape grower Nathan Jericho speaking with Sophie Holder and ending that story from Eliza Burlage. And Anacolides Wines spokesperson said in a statement that as negotiations with CCW are ongoing, they couldn't provide a further comment at this, times, uh, this time. And um, 
John has said that the Crow supporters will be happy with Chardonnay being produced. Thanks for that. John, I don't know the significance of that, sorry. Uh, But moving on to Valentine's Day. I know it's a day that a lot of people are a bit sceptical about. Think of it just as a bit of a marketing thing. But it is also lovely to just get a bunch of flowers. And a Riverland flower farmer says demand for locally grown blooms is strong, or has been strong in the lead up to Valentine's Day. We've talked a lot about this, uh, given that when COVID COVID was in full force and there weren't many planes. It was difficult to actually even get flowers, cut flowers into the country because a lot are imported. And it did see quite the proliferation of uh, local flower producers. Now, Naomi Mee started growing a range of different flowers last year to diversify her family's pig farming operations at Taylorville. And she tells Anita Ward deliveries for today were locked in about two weeks ago with sunflowers proving popular. Well, I only started flower farming last year, March, so this is actually my first Valentine's Day as a flower farmer, so they're all my first at the moment, so Christmas was very busy. I feel like maybe Christmas was probably busier maybe than Valentine's Day at this point. So yeah, Mother's Day, I would assume, is the next one, and I haven't done a Mother's Day either yet, so that'll be pretty busy. So what what sort of flowers do you grow? I've sort of stuck to... well. A massive variety at the moment because I'm trying to figure out what I'd actually like to keep as my staples, I suppose. Lots of old country classic kind of flowers. Sunflowers have been one of my focuses and everyone seems to know that too, which is awesome. Zinnias, snapdragons, stocks, sweet peas, marigolds, different varieties, asters, billy buttons, status, foxgloves and a whole heap of other stuff. I'm just trying out a lot at the moment. And with, um, with quite a wet summer that we've had, what are you finding yeah. to be successful? Well, it's hard to keep away powdery mildew and things like that, which is which has been definitely been a challenge with this wetter weather. Every Well, everything has really grown quite well. Really, the zinnias really went crazy, huge plants, but then we use all our compost from our pork farm as well. So that's really important to me reuse and what we've already got on farm so that helps obviously to make lovely luscious plants. You mentioned you know you've got a couple of weeks worth of orders is it just you who does the growing and and delivering and that side of things or is it um, you know a bit of an operation with the family? Well it's predominantly me for sure and yeah sometimes the kids pop in and help but yeah generally it's it's predominantly me. And, the... now, and husband, yep, and the husband, absolutely. <laughs> of so he's, he's amazing with all the garden prep and stuff like that, which is which has been awesome. And would you have a number on an estimate on how many orders you've got for Valentine's Day at this point? Well, I've capped it off. So I've done orders for delivery and then I'm just going to do a, a heap for sale at a Viewpoint Cafe on the highway and Rollbush Quality Meats. So I've probably, oh, gee, I don't know. I'll probably be doing around about 50 arrangements, but that's my max that I can kind of do myself. So um, there could be, you could easily do more. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, yeah. people are hunting. And as you say, the, the locally grown as well being um, a, yeah. a real selling point there. Um, yep. So in terms of the sort of size and scale of your flower farm, um, where's it at at the moment and um, where do you plan to take it next? Well, I guess I've, I've got like a little plot. I don't actually know how big a plot it is. It's enough for me anyway. I've got about five rows of oh, about 40 metres is kind of what I've got at the moment. 
And, yeah, over the next couple of years, I definitely am looking to grow it maybe just twice the size. I don't want to go too big at this point and still keep it fun. It's, it sort of started as a real passion and hobby as well, and that's what I want to keep it. So at this point, yeah, I'll probably just double it and, and just keep servicing around this area. And I've got a few weddings booked and, um, you know, all these first-time things. <laughs> Taylorville flower farmer Naomi May speaking with Anita Ward there. And hopefully it is success. It sounds like she's had quite the uh, summer, all those flowers that she listed off. That is a lot to be dealing with. Um, but I mean, there must be the demand. There was such a, uh, an eruption of demand when flowers couldn't come in from overseas. Now, Pam from Narracourt has detected in to say that she loves all flowers, especially if she doesn't have to pay for them. I agree. The ones you don't have to pay for are the best. And during summer, she does like the bright yellows, like sunflowers and chrysanthemums and things like that. I think that's love. I think it's a nice, happy day. And uh, you don't just have to give roses. This the, the nice, bright colours, I think, are very uplifting as well, Pam. I agree. And I'm actually born in November, so uh, chrysanthemums are quite special to me too. My aunt, who's quite into that sort of thing, always uh, gave me chrysanthemums and things to match my uh, birth month. So thank you so much for your text. Also, George from Marston also has uh, suggested that uh, the sunflower suggestion is quite sound. What could be more cheerful than sunflowers in full bloom? I agree. Sunflowers look wonderful uh, just in a a vase together. Um, It's uh, one of my good friend's favourite flowers. She always has sunflowers in her uh, house as well. And it is just such a happy, cheery flower to look at. Other ones we used to... um, give friends quite a lot were gerbras. I think gerbras are quite a, uh, a happy sort of flower as well. So if you've got flowers other than roses, ones that you like to give that are not roses because uh, perhaps they're special to you or as uh, Pam and John have suggested that you just like happy flowers, text me 0467922891 or phone 1300 Coming up, the Darling River might be falling upstream of Broken Hill and uh, well, is falling, and that means that uh, perhaps one of the last remaining true bush pubs can get back to business, but not without a fair bit of work beforehand. The amount of spiders and frogs and snakes and things was just, and hornets, like you can't believe it, like there was just a hornet's nest everywhere, everywhere you looked. So I will head to Tilpa to uh, a pub that had to be closed down due to all the flooding but is back up and running. But in the meantime, it is 14 minutes to one. Get your garden ready for autumn with the March issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Select some gorgeous ground covers, grow herbs for the cooler months and choose your favourite bulbs for spring colour. Learn about gardening on a steep slope the wonders of compost and the benefits of chook tractors and read about the amazing revegetation of a tropical Queensland island. Gardening Australia magazine, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill from Murray Bridge loves the natives when it comes to flowers. Proteas, banksias, plus frangipani as well. I agree. And they last so long. They they stay in your vase looking pretty good for some time. I I think I had some um, proteas in a vase for over a month because they just sort of dried slowly and still looked 
like something that you would have on display. Billy buttons and things like that also look wonderful as well. I agree wholeheartedly, Gail, that natives are a great choice for a bunch of flowers as well. Now, uh, moving on, as uh, I mentioned before, South Australia's up-and-coming exotic mushroom production is expanding. You might remember, I think it was last week or the week before, the, the opening of that extensive mushroom farm at the old Holden site in Elizabeth. Well, now a southeast resident has turned her passion for mushrooms and protecting the environment into her own business. Farish Pizarro launched her business, South Spore, last year, growing mushrooms for restaurants as well as offering classes in mushroom foraging, cooking and turning fungi into medicinal products. She is hoping to scale up to grow 300 kilograms of mushrooms a week using just two small sheds on her family's property in Greenways, which is completely off the grid. Ms Pizarro says she hopes the Limestone Coast will become renowned for fungi and mushrooms. At the moment, we're selling to restaurants. Uh, we're also going to start going and popping into markets and um, going and offering different uh, shops, uh, also health shops, uh, some of our tinctures and our powders and our dried uh, mushrooms. And yeah, slowly, slowly, hopefully, um, we will get to a point where at uh, the moment we're only producing about uh, 40 to 50 kilos a week. I'm, I would like to get to the point where we're producing about up to 300 uh, kilos a week. You were telling me earlier a bit of an unexpected move down here. Can you tell me about how you and your husband came to own this land in the southeast? (laughs) Uh, My husband actually bought this land without asking me on Gumtree. (laughs) But um, I love it now. I didn't initially, but now I feel really connected. We were from Adelaide, we were professionals, and um, we just didn't want to commit to a big mortgage over there and decided to come live off greed and try to grow our own veggies. So we have a greenhouse and aquaponics set up and this mushroom farm. And how did the mushroom farm come about? It wasn't part of the original plan? No, I'm just obsessed about them. And uh, every time I read, I discovered something new. People are discovering things that are just out standing like you wouldn't believe how amazing the whole kingdom quindom i like to call them uh the whole quindom of fungi is like there's mushrooms that can eat plastic there's mushrooms that can clean oil spills from the ocean and i fell in love with it and then i decided to quit my professional life i'm still doing a little bit but basically quit my professional life to dedicate my whole life to fungi and educating people about fungi and getting people hooked and curious about about it all and the southeast's good for that. It was a good move down here to grow that passion. I didn't think so to begin with, <laughs> but it's turned out amazing. I really was scared to move here. I've been super pleasantly surprised. Our community has been very inclusive, very supportive, welcoming and keen to learn. There's a lot of like-minded people. It's a really beautiful community that exists here in the southeast. So you've got a few different aspects to the business here. You're growing mushrooms to sell to restaurants as well as to make into products and then you want people to come out here and kind of learn about mushrooms and experience mushrooms as well. Absolutely. I not only just sell the the actual fruiting bodies of uh, fungi, but I also make products with the medicinal uh, mushrooms. I sell grow kits so that people can take home and just grow at their own pace at their own home and hopefully fall in love with the process. Also mushroom supplies, uh, growing supplies. And finally, uh, and the thing that I'm really excited about is basically the tours and the workshops. Uh, Tours about how to have a sustainable off-grid farm 
farm, um, safe mushroom foraging. So we go to forest and together and explore and and identify and really study these different beautiful mushrooms that are in our area. Do you think mushrooms get a bit of a bad rap with people being a bit scared of them, being nervous to use them at all, let alone forage ones that they'd find in the wild? Oh, absolutely. At the end of the day, it's about uh, education. So if people knew that when you go to the forest, you see a red fruit, if you know it's a tomato, you're not going to be scared. With mushrooms, the problem is people don't know what they're looking at. So they're really really scared of all of them in general. So hopefully we're going to bridge that gap. Something we haven't really talked about yet is your strong environmental ethos. And so the house was built off grid as well as where you're running the business out of. So can you talk a bit about that and why why that's important to you and how you're achieving a positive carbon footprint? So we we basically trying to source all of our products from farming nearby that they're they're byproducts so waste byproducts so we're growing mushrooms from straw and from um, soybean holes and from wood pellets and things that are very close to here to you know to try to reduce our carbon footprint but also we are running off grid so all of our stuff is basically run through solar and that's made the process of launching really slow because uh, you have to be a lot more conscious and and things take a lot longer when you are conscious because, I mean, I could have easily just bought a air conditioner, but instead we did passive cooling through underground piping and it, it takes longer, but it's at the end of the day, I'm very uh, strong to try to stick to the idea that the business has to be sustainable. So eventually we will also eliminate completely plastic. At the moment, it's a bit hard to do that. But when we scale up, um, I would love to be able to say um, uh, zero a plastic facility but yeah it's very important to us because we come from uh, sustainable architecture was our passion initially and yeah so we're making things so they're sustainable they're they free us up from a lot of you know cost and it feels good and does that ethos kind of go both ways as in you've tried to use local materials as much as possible with what you're producing are you hoping your mushrooms stay in the region and go to local restaurants and, and local cooks and people that are interested oh yeah absolutely i do believe there's there's really if i'm going to be sustainable and then i have to drive 100 kilometers 200 kilometers to de- deliver something then that sustainability kind of goes backwards so I'm trying really hard to just focus on our area. I want the locals to benefit. I know there's a lot of tourism here, so there's opportunities for our workshops and tours uh, and, you know, selling grow kits and stuff with the tourists. But I really want locals to appreciate uh, the Queendom of Fungi. And you have big plans for the for this place in the region, right? You want it to be kind of a, become a bit of a hub. Absolutely. We have a huge potential. And I think people realise, I mean, I've found people that have moved here recently and they're also really into mushrooms and they're so happy to be here because they also see the potential. I, I believe that we can become the hub of uh, Australia for, for mushroom. Yep. Owner and operator of South Spore Foresh Pizarro speaking with Elsie Adamo. And go online to abc.net.au to check out more on that story. It's a fascinating story. Buying up some land off Gumtree, believe it or not. Finally today, it was established in 1894 and the Tilpa Hotel is considered one of the last remaining 
true bush pubs in Australia. Located along the Darling River, the November floods, floods forced publican Phil Mahoney and his wife Sharon to close doors and leave town. And in good news, after three dry months, the Tarning Outback town's watering hole has reopened. The levee bank kept the town and the pub dry, but it took two weeks of work clearing out the snakes and spiders before the Marnies poured their first beer and fulfilled money. It was a great day for Tilfa as the levee held firm and kept the pub dry inside and out. Well, the water never got inside the pub, the levee. We did a bit of work with the community on the levee before we left, and and that was the difference. If we hadn't have done that, the water would have got through. But, uh, yeah, the township itself, the pub and the client doctor units and whatnot, they uh, were all good. But the amount of spiders and frogs and snakes and things was just... And hornets, like... You can't believe it. Like, there was just a hornet's nest everywhere everywhere you looked. <laughs> it doesn't take long for a place to become a ghost town because, yeah, like, you, there was just spider webs. Like, they'd taken over, golden orbs. <laughs> what, did you find a few snakes and little critters in and around uh, the pub? There was a bit of everything, yeah. There was a little bit of everything. <laughs> but anyway, they've all sort of moved on now. It then took you, what, three or four weeks just to get it cleaned up enough to open the doors? Oh, well, a couple of weeks it took us to get cleaned up, yeah, um... And, and the things was, the roads weren't officially open. Well, actually, the river roads are still not officially open. They'll be probably open to locals. But, yeah, the council are doing... A, they've got a couple of road gangs out here at the moment, grading between Laos and Tilpa, and they've got another one nearly finished the road between Tilpa and um, Barrier Highway. So, yeah, they're doing a good job, and uh, I reckon it'll only be a couple of, couple more weeks and everything will be open full bore, you know? The river roads sort of getting close to being open. When you opened the pub, Phil, did you get a few locals thinking, yep, yeah. we better call in? Oh, they were just as bloody busting as I was. Yeah, they were, <laughs> they were as keen as. Like, they were coming, even if the road wasn't, they were coming through paddocks to get here, yeah, they were. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't mind, they didn't mind what they had to do for a cold beer. That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. And if we didn't have the right beer for them, it didn't matter. They just um, had whatever. Did you have plenty of stock there? Did you keep your fridges running? What did you have to do? Uh, no, we switched the fridges. Oh, oh well, well, we kept one going, but we switched most of it off. But, yeah, we stopped out on, on the way at Dubbo and got a, a, a load of grog to bring with us just to, to kick us off again. So, uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, there was plenty. There was something here for them to, to, to drink in here. How did you feel when you opened the door and got your first customer in? Yeah, yeah, well, it was good. It was great, yeah. Like, we... Time that passed so quick, like you couldn't believe it was two months, but we felt we were only out a, a few weeks. But we did get around and visit our families and that, so it was good. It was a good catch-up for them, but no, we were ready to get back here for sure. What about the hip pocket? Was it much of a hit not having any income for that period? Oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty hard to go for a couple of months with no income, I can tell you that. Um, but anyway, we might, we'll might catch it back up hopefully again once this, everyone gets back on the Darling River run. The Menindee Lakes are full, so, uh, you know, there should be a few people poking around this year. And the Darling River now at Tilpa, I mean, it was up around 12 metres before Christmas and it's sitting just over two metres now, so yep. things have settled down a little. Yeah, 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 that's right. Once the water got back inside the banks, it, it did start to fall and fell pretty quick, but now it's uh, steady at that two and a half, whatever it is. And, yeah, and just it's sitting nicely at that. We've had a bumper season for... Ya- oh, a bumper. But no-one's no ever seen that many yabbies in the river before, but 
uh, I don't know if they're still going now, but there was Yabby's galore. You're going to have Yabby's on the menu? <laughs> we won't have them on the menu, but, you know, they'll be here. If anyone wants to catch and cook their own, uh, they should be plenty. It probably works out. The timing's pretty good, isn't it? Because really, January, February, it's that hot. No-one travels in normal circumstances. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. it couldn't... It, like, if it was going to happen, that was the best time for it to happen for us because January, February is the quietest time we've got and... Um, yeah, it's a bit too hot, and so yeah, that it worked out. If there was a good side to it, that was the good side to it for us. But the good news is, Phil, the beer taps are once again flowing at Tilpa. They're open, they're going again, and yeah, and the beer's cold, and uh, yeah, very welcome. Anyone that wants to come is welcome. I'm sure the open doors were a welcome sight to many of those locals, uh, given it was about three months that the pub wasn't open. That was Tilpa pub owner Phil Marnie speaking with Andrew Schmidt. That's it from me, but more coming up on your ABC local radio this afternoon. It's one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.